Brother, uh, are you tired of being discalced now? Are you back to being calced? Brother Andre? Literally completely discalced around here, my feet would be frozen. <laughs> You can't walk out. You can't walk outside here barefoot. I mean, you probably could. Certainly, you know, a hobbit could, but uh, I don't know a mortal man who could be walking around here barefoot. Although there's a story. Although Saint Francis Xavier walked around in Japan in the snow barefoot, and they said you could know you knew where he was walking because you could see the bloody footprints. Oh wow! Uh, you know that's an yeah. interesting thing that many people may not know that discalced means um, <laughs> means shoeless. Barefoot. Barefoot. It means shoeless. Shoeless. Shoeless, jo shoeless Josephine Jackson, Sister Josephine Jackson, <laughs> from the movie uh, uh, Convent of Dreams. You didn't see it, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> Do you see Field of Dreams? Brother, I was making it funny. I was, uh, it was oh, 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 oh. Yeah. I didn't see Field of Dreams either. Right. No. It was a weak attempt at humor. Uh, all right, brother, so you're back after a two-week hiatus. Since people were asked to pray for you yesterday, can you just tell us a little bit about how did it go well for you? Were you, were you? Well, well the, the first thing that I can say is thank you to everyone who prayed. I very much appreciate it. And I can say that my attorney told me it went well. Okay, good. Um, and, uh, and obviously, since it's a matter of litigation, it's not something that I, I should be talking about. No, no, that's fine. I just said, because people were concerned, they were asking me, was your brother okay? I'm like, yes, brother's okay. Yeah, we're, we're very grateful. We are not parties to this case. We're non-party. I was basically called in as a witness. But when I said a lot could be, a lot, a lot could be writing on this, I meant it uh, because we've been dragged into it, and it's very ugly, and it could, it, it has already complicated our existence immeasurably. Not, not... Uh, yeah, not only the thousands of dollars in legal fees we've had to pay because I had to get a lawyer to, to help us. So it's been quite the ordeal. Well, uh, God willing, it will come to a close, as my cousin Patrick likes to say, because this too shall, shall pass. It shall pass. We don't know when, but it shall pass. Um, well, brother, uh, a blessed. Uh, well, we, we've talked to you since Lent began, so uh, it's been two weeks, right? We are in the second week of Lent. I haven't talked to you um, since Lent began. It's two weeks since. Yeah, because we didn't do a show on Ash Wednesday. No, right? we you didn't. Were, you so. were down sunning yourself in Florida. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in Florida, all right. Uh, well, we we got off to a. I think we all got off to a a, a very good start of, of of Lent here this year. We did have Matthew Place, uh, uh, Plessy on the show who wrote the book about fasting. At, uh, I heard, I heard it. I heard, I heard. I think most of it, and it was quite good. Well, you know, he kind of punched, he kind of punched my manliness in the gut. And kind of, kind of like challenged me, so I'm like, all right, all right, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see if we can do that. And I've actually done the one meal a day. You can ask Maggie. Uh, and I wait till after 3 p.m. Now I, I don't know if I can make it to sundown. I <laughs> tried to make it to sundown, um, but uh, we are all off to a. Uh, I think many of us are off to a good Lenten start, and we've had lots of obstacles thrown in our path, uh, brother. As I'm sure you know, uh, Ryan Grant's wife Sarah is on her deathbed. 
And we've been praying for Sarah. Yes, we have been asking. Uh, you know, our friend Fiorella is uh, she. She is very close to people who are pursuing the canonization of the Irish priest, uh, Father Willie Doyle. And now that his case has actually been begun, uh, some of us have been asking Father Willie, "You need two miracles for to be, to be canonized." Here's a chance so for Sarah, uh, and then also for Brian Koch's niece, Elise, who was shot in the chest after an altercation two Sunday nights ago uh, with some oh people goodness. she was hanging out with. And you wouldn't believe what can happen to you, what can happen to one after you get shot, but a single gunshot wound to the chest. You know, the bullet took out part of her heart, damaged it. You know, heart muscle doesn't grow back. And took out her spleen, part of her intestines. But the real damage that has been done since she has been hospitalized, and they saved her life, and we've all been praying for miracles for that, is her blood flow, her circulation got so poor that the poor girl's legs are in jeopardy now because they're the, uh, of, of, of basically gangrening and having to be amputated. So uh, they're doing an emergency surgery again this morning. Uh, so lots of opportunities and lots of, uh, of, of holy and uh, charitable things, Brother Andre, to fast on behalf of and to pray this Lent already. So uh, I'm not sure what I should say to God about that other than thank you, God. Um, <laughs> and then just keep the routine. Anyway, I just wanted to catch you up on what uh, has been going on here on Wednesday. David uh, Simpson filled in admirably for you last week. Uh, how did your PSAT te uh, test go? Oh, well... <clears throat> I mean, I, I, we, we don't find out till weeks later what the grading was, but uh, we haven't even sent them in because one little lad was late, uh, was, was absent that day, and we had to delay it, and I had to call the college board people to find out what you do when you get a delay. It's, it's quite the bureaucracy. <laughs> so, um, so he's actually taking it now a couple of rooms over from where I am. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so we're, we're, then, then I guess tomorrow I have to send all the stuff back in hermetically sealed packages. Hermetically sealed packages. <laughs> uh, brother, uh, before we begin our Wisdom Wednesday, just one final note. Someone that, and I'm not going to break the news here because I can't confirm it, but someone that you know that is recognized as a pretty, uh, uh, a pretty fair expert, if you will, in distributism, is very interested in coming to the Alter Culture and Trade Congress. And I will probably know that's, either today or tomorrow. That's that's grand. It is grand. I am thrilled about it. But uh, I, I'm, I'm sure he'll I'm sure he'll he'll have a very commanding presence. There. <laughs> I'm not going to say it until I can actually confirm it. But he is. I'm not going to say it. I won't even hint. <laughs> All right, take a hint, brother. Uh, yesterday was the feast of Saint Thomas Aquinas. And I was thinking back on this, and I said, you know, of all the saints that Brother Andre, Marie, and I have had discussed, and there have been many on Wisdom Wednesday, the day has never fallen on St. Thomas's feast day. And it didn't this year <laughs> again, uh, but it's close enough, as they say, uh, uh, close enough in horseshoes and grenade throwing. So I thought we would talk <laughs> about St. Thomas Aquinas today. Because there, I mean, what uh, there'd be no shortage of, of of things that you could talk about him, 
Um, where his works in the Summa, you know, the life he led. I know I used to, uh, I've started a couple speeches with a funny, kind of a humorous story about St. Thomas, about how his family was like, no, you're not going to be a friar or a priest or whatever. You're going to be a lawyer and you're going to marry this girl. And he's like, no, I'm not. And they're like, okay, we're going to get you. And so they locked him in a room with two beautiful young lasses in a various state of undress is one of the stories. But he's quite the figure of, that's the 13th century, right? Can I tell that story accurately? Yeah, please do. Okay, so the, and because it's very significant to, to St. Thomas's whole life. Okay. So came, first of all, you have to know he came from a noble family. Right. His father was a knight. Several of his brothers were knights, like with a K. Mm-hmm. And um, they had various properties and, and, and you know estates and so forth. They were well-to-do. And they, you know, it was customary at those times that the younger boys, the younger children, would be sort of given over to the service of God. Okay. So th- they sent him when he was five years old to go study with the Benedictine monks in Monte Cassino. Okay. And they had envisioned him to become an abbot, in fact, the abbot of, San, of, of, of um, Monte Cassino, which tells you a little bit about the way things were at those times. Like, okay, this is an affluent family. They had this son, kind of son of privilege. They sent him five years old to go study with the monks. And their plan was that eventually he would be the abbot. <laughs> That's not how it's supposed to work. But um, unfortunately, it did often work like that. Hmm. Now, St. Thomas learned from the monks. He, he, he learned diligently. He was a brilliant man, very gifted mind, mm-hmm. although he was quiet and, and sort of, um, he was a big man. He was large. Um, and some people described him as beautiful, that he had this beautiful appearance. Um, and uh, he, like the mother of one of his Dominican friars later, said that when he walked through the town, he was so large, so big. I mean, he wasn't even very tall. He was a Lombard, and, and in, in the Lombardy region, they're descended from this German stock that had invaded. The Lombards were Germans when they invaded Italy, right? But, of course, centuries later, they're, they're mixed in, and they're, and they're just other Italians, right? But, um, but still, they would have been taller than your average Italian. So apparently he had this rather stunning appearance, being tall and um, apparently of comely appearance, at least according to the mother of one of his Dominican brothers. Mm. Uh, and that, that he'd be walking through the town and people would stop what they were doing just to stare at him. Now, he's going to, uh, he goes to Monte Cassino, studies from them, and he's a teenager when, he's, when, he's, when he gets out. And he was sent for further studies at Naples. And while at Naples, he gets acquainted with the Dominicans for the first time. Now, keep in mind, they're founded by St. Dominic around 1220. I can't give you the exact year. I I get the foundations of the different Dominican orders a little confused in my mind. I want to say 1215, but it could be as late as 1220. So they're, um, they're fairly new, huh? They're fairly new. They're, they're, they're sort of new on the scene. They, they live a very poor life, uh, perhaps not, not as radical as the Franciscans, but still they lived a very, very poor life. St. Do- Dominic himself knew St. Francis, was edified with him, and wanted to live a very poor life. Okay. Um, so they, they lived a um, very simple life, very poor life, but they were also extremely learned men. They, they gave themselves to study. 
so that they could preach the gospel and so they could teach. A lot of them, a lot of the early Dominicans were university professors. In fact, they recruited students and and faculty out of you know the University of Bologna, the University of Paris, the University, you know Oxford eventually in England. Uh, all these different um, huge universities um, all across Europe, and um, so much so that people were very alarmed. And later on, the mendicants would have to defend their their very existence because of the jealousy that, that, that happened over their uh, rather um, precocious growth for a young uh, movement. Anyway, the parents did not want him to become a Dominican because when he was at Naples, he became acquainted with the Dominicans and he was attracted to this. Okay. So he joined the Dominicans. Uh, again, I said the family had knights in it. They captured him when he was on the road someplace and brought him to one of their family estates that was not too far from where he was captured. And he was basically under house arrest. Now, there's, a, I think a lot of mythology has grown up around this. He wasn't imprisoned. He wasn't thrown in, in, a, in a dark, dirty dungeon. But he was basically under house arrest. And during the time he was, he read the entire Bible. Uh, he all, he, and he did a lot of study. He managed to convince his sister to become a Cistercian nun. And um, eventually, he would convince his mother, uh, apparently, according to the book I'm currently reading about St. Thomas, he would eventually convince his mother to let him escape. Not to let him go officially, but to let him escape. So he was under this house arrest. Now, while this is happening, I, I think it was his brother's, um, so, so keep in mind, they didn't want him to be a lawyer. They didn't want him to have any secular career. They wanted him to be the abbot of Monte Cassino. Okay. Now, his brothers want to break him of his Dominican um, vocation. So they're the ones who lock him in a tower and throw in a prostitute uh, in order to tempt him. And St. Thomas reaches into the, the fireplace and pulls out a firebrand and chases the woman out of the room. <laughs> and when she closes the wooden, the big wooden door behind her as she's escaping for her, for her life, I mean, he probably wouldn't have killed her, I'm sure. Um, but as she closes the door behind her, he takes the, the firebrand and he traces a cross in the, in the door. So there was this you know, wooden door with this, with this black cross on it from the charring from... from um, what St. Thomas uh, was chasing this uh, woman of ill reputes with. So after that, there's a tradition that, that two angels came and girded him with this cincture of chastity, and that he never from that point on for the rest of his entire life had any um, disordered movements of, of sexual concupiscence. That's and, a miracle. Uh, and that's why there's... Um, the Angelic Warfare Confraternity that, that grew out of this, and young people can sign up and get this medal and join the Angelic Warfare Confraternity, and they say certain prayers invoking St. Thomas, and it's all about St. Thomas's purity, and I think there's a chord associated with it. I looked into the confraternity and contacted the woman in this country who was in charge of it, and I never could get the information from her because I wanted to sign up some of our young people here to join the Angelic Warfare Confraternity. Um, but it didn't. It, it yeah. It never materialized. 
Um, <clears throat> uh, interestingly, uh, the gal that was in charge of it, by the way, was the woman, same woman, Fran, somebody who used to publish Joe Sobrin stuff. <laughs> I'd never uh, heard of this confraternity, brother. Oh, yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, I don't know why the Dominicans aren't pushing it more, but I, I think I heard something about, I, th I think the lady was actually a third-order Dominican, um, uh, and, and it was a lay apostolate, so this wasn't, you know, you think it'd be in charge, the Dominican priest friar would be in charge of it, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, it's a big deal, and it's a very, it's, it should be a much bigger deal than it is, given the impurity of our day, and that the purity of St. Thomas is something that we should emulate. By the way, many fathers of the church, like St. Jerome, St. Jerome who said, if you want to um, be rid of the um, lust of the flesh, cultivate the study of scripture. Um, spiritual writers recommend study as a remedy <clears throat> to sexual temptations. And they're serious about that. I knew a priest who told me that whenever he was tempted uh, to any kind of bad thoughts, he would do math problems. Now, this priest was very good at math, and he loved math. He actually um, was an amateur mathematician who <clears throat> published, who was published for calculating something about the orbits of one of the planets. I forget what it was, and he just uses math. Don't hear do about it. that every day now, do you? <laughs> no, and <clears throat> and the thing is, he told me that you know that, that one way to rid yourself of these temptations is to study and to apply your mind to something difficult. So the, um, the, 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 and for the Dominicans, study is a part of their penance. Remember, Dominican nuns who are cloistered, I mean nuns, not sisters who might teach, but nuns. Like Mother Assumpta Long is a Dominican sister. She's not a nun. But the Dominican nuns are cloistered, just like Benedictine nuns or Cistercian nuns or Trappist nuns or whatever. And for them, they belong to the O. P. They belong to the order of preachers. So they preach too. But how do they preach? By their life of prayer and penance. That is, that, and that, it's just something most them, people don't know, brother. So thank you. Yeah, for them, study is a penance. I knew a Dominican friar, God bless him, Father Charles Fiore, um, uh, who, who told me about a conference that he had given to some Dominican nuns, and he reminded them, sisters, your your uh, penance, you have to study, because that's part of your life of penance. This is so, uh, Brother Andre Marie, the St. Benedict Center. It's a Wisdom Wednesday. We, we are back, and we're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas. Brother, I just wanted to, to throw in, because it's no such thing as coincidences, that in this, uh, this fasting routine that, uh, the, that I am pursuing this Lent, I have developed a, another routine in the evening, so I don't th think ab think about the bowl of ice cream that I want. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it is reading and learning from Sancte Euronymy and my Latin courses. Courses. Well, there you go. The the yeah. They, and that's I go a to perfect. And yeah, it works. Oh, it works. It's a perfect distraction because you can't sit there and try to learn the fifth declension. <laughs> Going like, I don't actually remember the first two, but uh, I'm trying to learn the fifth declension and then think about Rocky Road. So <laughs> uh, I can see how study could come in, and uh, act, uh, but I didn't consider it penitential. Uh, um, but uh, well, it, it, well, it is. It is. It is penitential, and and we and and you know you should pray before and after it. It's a little. Studying itself is a little school of virtue, you know, there, 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 you have to have the virtue of diligence, you have to have 
you have to have fortitude. <laughs> I mean, so, um, the, you know, everything we do, we can approach it as this is another class in my school of virtue. And if it's study, yeah, if it's fasting, yeah, all of them. Uh, it's all of a piece, right? I have learned very well to impersonate my, uh, my, my, uh, my teacher. Um, <laughs> Pagina quinquagesima quinta. <laughs> yeah, I like the way they pronounce the Latin. No, he's beautiful. Uh, no, he just, I can't do the trill, though. That man is gifted. I've never heard anyone trill. I've never oh, heard. You don't have him. to be gifted to trill. You just have to have uh, the tongue for it. Oh, brother Andre, you're talking to someone who's been using that tongue for 31 years, and I have been practicing and trying to learn it and imitate him. It is, and I, I don't have it. I'm still working on it. I, I gargle like you accused me of garlicking. I, gargling. I gargle. I go. Yeah, that was French. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, I go. I, I got the French down. The. A little more difficult. Anyway, let's get back to St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so when St. Thomas escaped that room, he got, when he escaped the, 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 the um, I want to say castle, but it was some sort of an estate, he ended up going back to the Dominicans, and they made sure that he was never in a town too close to where his family had an estate after that. <laughs> um, but he, but he, uh, he ended up, so, so that story is kind of sim sim symbolic of his vocation, right? I mean, he, he struggled for it. Later on, he would write in the Summa when he's talking about patience that patience uh, is something that is impossible to have without grace. And when I read that in the context of reading his life much more fully, mm -hmm. I, I'm reading a very full biography right now. Can you tell us who's the author so we can look it up? Father uh, Torell, a, Bene uh, a Benedictine, uh, excuse me, a Dominican friar named Father, um, I think it's Jean Torell. Um, and it's a two-volume work. And um, it's, yeah, it's beefy. But um, the, w when you read St. Thomas in, in the Summa, just sort of in isolation, you get this picture of this intellectual who's, you know, quietly there writing in a peaceful, tranquil uh, cloistered friary someplace or in some hall of study in either Naples or um, Gaeta or um, uh, let's see, he was in Rome at one point. He, of course, he's at Saint-Jacques in Paris. Um, you get this idea that he's just sort of sitting there quietly with the leisure time to give full attention to study, right. which I'm, I'm sure a large percentage of the time was true. But he had a lot of struggles to go through. In fact, he had to defend, the, the mendicant orders were defending their very existence and their right to teach. They were called by the, seculars of, uh, the secular masters at the University of Paris, who took to calling them you know, preach, preachers of the devil and things like that. They were attacked because the secular masters saw their livelihoods being destroyed because the, here you had these poor religious who were coming in and taking the teaching jobs. So both, both at one time, both St. Bonaventure, um, who eventually becomes the minister general of the entire Franciscan, Franciscan order, and St. Thomas were teaching uh, in teaching chairs at the University of Paris. They knew one another. And both of them had to go to um, defend the um, mendicant orders uh, and their right to teach. 
the Pope backed them up. So it was not a, ultimately it was not a, a, a big problem. But during the time that they were under assault, it was a huge problem. And one of the interesting things is, and this is what I tie into that thing about patience, to show you, this wasn't just, you know, some academic quarrel. This became street brawling. And you had young ruffians, and some of the students at, at uh, the University of Paris got in on the side of the secular masters. And they, uh, the Dominicans were actually in fear of their lives at one point. And St. Jacques Priory, where St. Thomas lived, and the University of Paris, where he worked and other friars worked, had to be guarded by the royal archers of King St. Louis IX. So this was not a, um, just a, you know, a little um, quibble between academics. It became, um, a, 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 you know, it, 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 I, won't say, I won't compare these to Antifa mobs, but because um, I don't think they use Molotov cocktails, but there was there was something sort of analogous to that. It was it was riotous behavior, and Saint Louis himself, who was contemporary of Saint Thomas, sends the royal archers in to guard the Dominican friars. Wow, never heard that story before. Of course, Saint Louis was a third order <laughs> Franciscan, so he was partial to the mendicants. Uh, Brother Andre Marie from the Saint Benedict Center hosts a reconquest on our Dude Maker uh, Combrex line, uh, Brother. I don't know if you know this, and uh, I, I'm trying to think of how to ask the question. There's a specific format that St. Thomas uses for every question in the Summa. And it's, the, it's what the subject is, and then there is, uh, there are, uh, I don't have it in front of me here, and I don't read it often enough, I confess. And then there are the objections, and then he says, and then there is, and I answer that, and then he answers the points. Do we know how he, was, it, was that tradition at the time, or did he kind of create that? You missed the sit contra. But, uh, sit contra, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. It's funny that I had to point out you missed the sit contra, because that's kind of a sit contra in itself. <laughs> uh, but um, um, the... Uh, there was a standard approach to taking up, a, there was a standard approach to debate. So, you know, medieval controversy, theological controversies were a highly disciplined art. They're mocked today because, you know, everybody's like, yeah, oh, how many angels does it take to dance in the head of a pin? <laughs> they mock the scholastics. And by the way, that has to do with a very subtle, uh, and if you know about it, that's a pun, a very subtle question having to do with matter. But, uh, and, and how angels are composed. But um, they just mock it for being this almost like rabbinical um, casuistry. Yeah, the rabbis would argue about ridiculous things. And we know this because it comes up in the Gospels. Mm. Um, and, and rabbinical argumentation was extremely um, silly at times. Uh, and they would argue about what's the greatest thing in the law. And you have somebody like Hillel... Get, landing on some, one of the most obscure passages of Deuteronomy or something is this is the greatest thing in the law and it's some absolutely minute prescription. Um, so uh, and you, they would argue about what what gives a man a right to divorce his wife and Hillel, who's kind of a liberal, says, well, if he burns if he burn if she burns his food, he can divorce her. Huh. Um, so the kind of argumentation that they would get in was ridiculous, but scholastic argumentation wasn't. It's only later scholasticism that sort of degenerates. But in St. Thomas's day, there was robust debate and argumentation. And there would be uh, these professional debates in the universities. 
So the approach of saying, um, okay, here's my thesis, here's the opposite view, and you don't put it out like you're going to parody it, like you're going to set up a straw man to, to tackle, because that's chicken-hearted for an academic. Right. You want to put the um, objection in the best possible way. And then you give your full answer, and then you reply to the objections. Well, so Saint Th I think St. Thomas was the first one to do it in exactly this way, but the idea of of uh, proposing a thesis and then um, giving um, answers, giving objections to it that people would have, and then answering those objections, that was nothing new with St. Thomas. That was already part of the scholasticism of his day. He just took it and put it into a particular form in the Summa. So he starts an article in the Summa with... Um, oh, it's funny, because the questions aren't asked as questions, and the articles are asked as questions. That's right. And the articles are the smaller denominations, and the questions are the larger ones. But in the articles, he will ask a question, and then he will immediately present objections. Then he does the said contra, which is the quick sort of one sentence, but against that is this, and he cites some authority, either scriptural or Aristotle or some, or, or some father of the church, uh, Greek or Latin. He was, and by the way, St. Thomas was kind of trailblazer for, in, in Latin theology, in Western European Latin theology, St. Thomas was a real trailblazer for using the Eastern Fathers. He quotes something like 57 Eastern Fathers of the Church, and he quotes them in, uh, with, with great vigor and a lot, way more than most of his contemporaries would do. Most of them were familiar with, of course, St. Jerome and St. Augustine. Um, Saint, they would quote maybe St. Bernard. They would quote a lot of the, um, Western, the Latin fathers and maybe some of the Eastern fathers that were widely available in Latin translations. But St. Thomas had access to the, uh, I think, virtually the complete writings of St. John Chrysostom. Um, and and uh, St. John Damascene, who himself was kind of an encyclopedia of the earlier Eastern Fathers, because he had quoted them a lot. Uh, St. Maximus the Confessor, who is very important to the early Christological um, debates, and, Christ and, and, and he was used in some of the councils. Um, so St. Thomas is quoting these Eastern Fathers very, very copiously, um, and um, anyway, so, so he gives the said contra, and then after the said contra, he gives the longer part, which is the respondeo, I answer that. And I, then he gives his long explanation. And then he concludes with the answers to each one of the objections. The amazing thing for you listeners out there to, um, uh, to know about this, and uh, maybe to whet your appetite uh, to want to learn about it, name the theological question that you might have, or argument you, you might have for someone else. Um, uh, it's there's a very good chance that there's a summa that was written about it, and uh, that St. Thomas can give you the answer that that you seek. Now, not on everything, but there's a lot there, brother. You'll find this interesting. But then you met him, Father Damien. You know he was Eastern Orthodox. He he grew up Eastern Orthodox and converted over. He was converted by a Byzantine. Now, settle the argument, Brother Andre. I said this was a brother question. Is it Byzantine or Byzantine? Or are both um, of us wrong? I, I say Byzantine, okay. but I do I do believe that either pronunciation is accepted. Okay, so Father Damien's godfather is a man that he calls his godfather, is a, a Byzantine 
Uh, he's a deacon. He's not even a priest. He's a, he's, a, he's a deacon. But Father carries his book around for all his homilies. And it it looks like a, it looks like your uh, your Holy Cross yearbook, about that thick and about that size. It's Saint John Chrysostom, and he almost every sermon he gives, he goes, and I want to quote an Eastern Father, and he'll quote. He did it Sunday again. He used well, the Byzantine Christians call Saint John Chrysostom our Father among the saints. Well, because their liturgy is the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Yeah, so, so when you mentioned that, I, just, I, I thought of Father Damien. Um, St. Thomas was also, you mentioned the street brawls and the, and the, and the kind of the, the, the debates he had with St. Uh, Bonaventure. Um, were there resolutions to any of these questions? And what do we think today? Who, who got what right, or were they just kind of opinions on the same matter? Well, well the brawls were about whether the Dominican and the Franciscan friars had the right to, to teach. And that was settled by the Pope. Okay. So, you know, the fact is that the Dominicans and the Franciscans are, are still teaching, so I guess they won, <laughs> and they did. Clearly they won. That's a good now, thing. Um, St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure argued. It said that St. Bonaventure said to St. Thomas, you're the father of all heresies. I think that's probably one of those um, urban legends. Mm-hmm. But they clearly had um, arguments, and keep in mind the Franciscan theologians would still have been more in the Platonic or Neoplatonic um, philosophical tradition, whereas St. Albertus Manius, the teacher of St. Thomas, also called himself called the Universal Doctor, who was n- nothing to shake a stick at. I mean, he was an extremely accomplished um, genius himself, and, he w- and he, he's the one who, when the students took to calling St. Thomas... Um, the dumb ox, because he was so taciturn. Um, they said, uh, he said, I tell you, this ox's brain will be heard all around the world one day. So he recognized the genius of St. Thomas, whom he put to work as kind of a teaching assistant. I think he made him grade papers or something, but he, I think, or, or a research assistant, but he had him as his assistant for some years. And St. Thomas learned a lot from St. Albertus Manius. Um, there was a funny story. The guy about in our Al- chat room? What's that? The guy oh, in our oh. chat room. <laughs> There's a funny story about St. Thomas in the study of St. Albertus Manius. St. Albertus Manius was into all the physical science. He was like Aristotle. He was into Aristotle, but he's also a lot like him because he was into physical sciences and technology and all kinds of things. And he built this, some kind of weird 13th century robot, some kind of automaton, and it must have been mechanical. I have no idea what it was made of. But it scared the bejeebies out of St. Thomas because this thing starts moving all by itself in the study. And St. Thomas smashed it to bits because he didn't know what the heck it was and it spooked him. Um, I think that's hilarious. But um, I think it's hilarious, too, the fact maybe, that he can yeah. build it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, St. Albert the Great was, was a real polymath. I mean, he knew all kinds of things about all kinds of things. So St. Thomas w- w- himself is a bit more focused, I think, uh, and didn't wasn't so much into the natural sciences as St. Albert. Um, but he, he definitely um, was a man of deep and profound study. So we're talking about St. Thomas Aquinas. His feast day was uh, yesterday, the angelic doctor, as he became known. What, was, was, was that during his lifetime? 
that he became well known. No, no, that 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 his uh, the, that did, when was the term coined? The angelic doctor. I assume this is after he. he oh, that that would be after his death. Okay, all right. Um, Father, and it's, Ch- bo- and it's both because of the purity of his life and because he wrote so eloquently about the angels. Okay, so so we can answer the question: and how many? Okay, so how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Well, if if you know anything about angels, I, and I know a little bit, uh, but I don't know. Did they answer the question? Um, well, okay. So, Mike, I said it's a subtle question, and it really is. It, it, the debate was concerning subtle matter, ah. because a lot of the uh, a lot of the um, scholastics thought that the planets. Now, we think the planets are made of Swiss cheese, but the <laughs> scholastics thought that the planets were made of a thing called, many of them thought that they were made of a thing called subtle matter, which was something not of the matter, the material of this earth. And many of them thought that um, subtle matter was also what angels were composed of, because angels aren't perfectly simple like God. They're simpler than we are. But um, St. Thomas wouldn't have believed in subtle, that, that the angels were composed of subtle matter. He believed that they were pure spirits. And that, I think, is the majority opinion. And nobody, to my knowledge, Iaconus could correct me if he wants, but um, nobody uh, um, thinks that um, and believes in subtle matter anymore. I've never heard anybody refer to it seriously as this is something I believe in. Um, so... Um, the, the angels dancing on the head of a pin would have been about um, whether whether angels are composed of a, a thing like subtle matter, which would have made them material so that they would have had some sort of material presence in the world. Now, St. Thomas would argue that angels are only present in a place by mode of operation, mm. that they're not present in a place materially at all because they're not composed of subtle matter. Sure, I'd never heard of subtle, uh, su- subtle matter. If I heard of <laughs> it, I don't recall it. There are some TAC people that might. That's hilarious. Maybe I'll have to ask them because I'm 20 minutes away from their New England campus. Uh, uh, all right, so we've settled. Uh, we, we've learned a lot here today already. Uh, can you tell us the story of when St. Thomas, near the end of his life, is... Um, I don't want to say he was caught, but he was discovered that he was burning his papers... Uh, by some of the uh, uh, the the people that were uh, near to him, and they they uh, I guess they talked him out of it or they stopped him. Is this urban well, legend or this actually happens? Okay, so I believe it happened. If not, uh, if not, in as the way it's commonly told, something happened. He he. So perhaps the most edifying part of that is this: on the feast of Saint Nicholas, and I believe that the feast of Saint Nicholas would have been observed at the time. It, it was probably not even in a new feast, it was probably long on the calendar, December 6th of the year 1773, St. Thomas is offering the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and he sees a vision which he cannot, he doesn't relate to anybody, but he gets some sort of a vision, some sort of an ecstatic experience where he's given a vision. And he doesn't write from that point on. So this is why the Tertiopars of the Summa is incomplete. It was completed by students, sort of the way Bruckner's Eighth Symphony was completed by, or Bruckner's, pardon me, Ninth Symphony has been completed by various 
people who attempted to take what Bruckner had done in the fourth movement before he died and just sort of stitch it all together and complete it. Um, but um, uh, the, the work of St. Thomas was not finished, so the Tertia Pars was, was incomplete, and his, some of his students later took from the um, information from his um, commentary on the Book of Sentences of St. Peter Lombard, and then they sort of stitched together in the form of what we've already described with the objections and the said contra and the I respondio and all that, right? The answers to objections. Right, right. And they completed it. But it wasn't St. Thomas's work, but it was based on earlier works of St. Thomas. Keep in mind, he wrote the Summa as a mature theologian. Before that, we have the Summa Contra Gentiles. Um, and then, you know, before that, we have his... I, I guess it was something akin to his doctoral dissertation. He wrote the commentary on the book of Sentences of St. Peter of Lombard, which was standard fare for all theologians of the day to write a book of commentaries on the sentences of St. Peter Lombard because that was the standard theological text of the day. And in order to, you know, so comment in sent, you'll see this as an abbreviation in so many footnotes of so many theological books. And it could be by this person, that person, or the other person because everybody was writing commentaries on the sentences of St. Peter Lombard, uh, not St., but Peter Lombard. Interesting. Um, so St. Saint, St. Thomas gets this vision and then determines that he can't write anything else. Now, it's after that that he takes what he'd written of the Summa and goes to chuck it in the fire, and supposedly, you know, he goes to do this, and the Dominicans, some of his brethren come in, and could have been Friar Reginald, I don't know, takes it out of the fire and says, no way. I was just don't listening to, his, uh, to Father Ripiger tell this story. Well, I, I would I, not have you ignorant, brethren, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. One night, the secretary to St. Thomas Aquinas was awoken by voices in St. Thomas's cell, and the voices were not St. Thomas's. Shortly thereafter, St. Thomas came out and asked his secretary to actually begin the process of completing a section in which he was doing a commentary on Isaiah. And after the secretary had noticed that no one had left the cell and yet nobody was in there, and so he asked St. Thomas after the completion of the commentary, he said, who is in your cell? And St. Thomas began crying and says, I'll tell you, but you can't tell anybody until after I'm a dad. He said, St. Peter and St. Paul appeared to me to explain the passage. This is a sign that the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas are not like many of the other authors that we read. The passage from the commentary on Isaiah has those who have the beatific vision as its source. That's just, I, I, I listened to this entire sermon. By the way, it's on Crusade Max. You can go listen to it when the show is over. That Father Ripperture sermon is there. And I was fascinated. I listened to the whole thing the other day. Father Ripperture describing other things about St. Tom, uh, Thomas. It really piques your imagination. Um, uh, but you, you must also consider here, and I'm not trying to sound silly or juvenile, but this is an actual living, breathing human being. He was a man. He lived. And it's just, it's simply stunning <laughs> just to review the man's life and to hear stories like this. It's just, it's just, it's just stunning to hear. It almost makes you say you don't really believe, and I'm sure the, 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 the Contra Mundum people would say, or not the Contra, the Contra Tomas would say, you don't really believe that, do you? And of course we would say, of course we do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, you don't have to believe everything that St. Thomas wrote. He's not the no. magisterium. But, um, you know, and there are Dominicans, uh, you know, who, who 
didn't believe everything that St. Thomas wrote. But, um, you know, there, the, the, um, not everything that St. Thomas wrote is, has as its source people who were in the beatific vision. You know, the, the, perhaps the commentary on Isaiah has passages like that. But, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this to diss St. Thomas. I'm, I'm, I love St. Thomas. I love reading St. Thomas. And he's my standard go-to guy for theology. But, uh, but I, I just don't want anybody to get some exaggerated idea that if St. Thomas said it, it's infallible. No, no, that's, it's not. Well, that's it, not true. Well, you know, he actually... But, well, go ahead. The, okay, so we don't have much time. I just want, I'd like to squeeze out a few more points about St. Thomas. All right. Um, he, the, the, the book that he was writing here was not the Summa. This is a commentary on Isaiah. And he had to give commentaries as part of his teaching on various books of Scripture. And he wrote a beautiful commentary in the book of Isaiah. He wrote, also wrote a be beautiful book on the com uh, of commentaries on the book of Job, where he, took, he, he blazed new territory in, in writing that book. St. Gregory the Great had written an ex exquisitely beautiful the book, book of Morals on Job. Uh, Moralia in Job, it's called in Latin. Um, and St. Thomas uses St. Gregory, but he, he, he blazes new, a, trail, a new trail in commenting on Job. And it's a real study in divine providence for St. Thomas, which was a, a subject of great interest to him. So it, he was steeped in scriptures. By the time he writes the Summa, again, as a mature theologian, he had been, his mind had been, um, I won't say pickled, had been steeped in um, had been had been um, you know sort of um, um, hmm, uh, spiced in whatever uh, uh, the 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 scriptures which he studied assiduously along with commentaries of the church fathers. So and he had written extensive commentaries on some of these books of scripture. When he wrote the Summa, now now you talk about a secretary. This was Friar Reginald. When he wrote the Summa, he was dictating. And when he dictated, he didn't have notes. Everything that he wrote in the Summa, uh, where he's quoting scripture, or where he's quoting a father of the church, or where he's quoting Aristotle, or where he's quoting the Muslim commentators on Aristotle, Averroes and Avicenna, or where he's quoting Maimonides, which he occasionally does, he had read Maimonides, a Jewish rabbi, Spanish Jewish rabbi. Um, he's going by sheer memory. This is one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about St. Thomas. When he wrote something, he's not like most of us who have stuff spread out all over the place or, you know, you have a million tabs open on your web browser. Um, oh, no, only 750,000. Come on. Yeah. For St. Thomas, <laughs> it, was, it was memory. And that's why every once in a while he gets something a little wrong. So the modern editions of the Summa will ha actually have these sort of corrections where he misquoted slightly a passage. And, of course, he's using the Latin Vulgate when he's quoting Scripture. Right, right. So sometimes you get these pettifogging commentators say, well, that's what the Vulgate said, but this is what the other translations say. Did you call it pettifogging? Um, pardon? Did you say pettifogging? I did. <laughs> There's a word we need to bring back in our vocab. You pettifogist. <laughs> oh, well, I know some petty foggers. So the the, the correcty correctorsons, right? Yes, I yes, yes, yes. I, I have a new word for them now. I'm so excited. I just wrote it down. All of you petty foggerists out there. All right. Uh, no, no, petty foggers. Petty foggers. Petty. Yes. 
Well, I, I, I can neologism. Uh, I can make a neologism if I want. <laughs> it doesn't have to be accurate. You're the host, Mike. <laughs> um, Chesterton also wrote a commentary on the book of Job. He was fond of the book of Job. As a matter of fact, when the Chesterton Conference came here, me and David Simpson and a bunch of us went to it, in 2016, Joseph Pierce was here. They actually hired an actor to get up on stage and to read, or to, you know, he didn't read, he knew it, he had memorized, to, to, uh, to give, uh, in an oral form, Chesterton's commentary on the book of Job. Um, I, you know what? Talking about putting something on Crusade Max, I'm pretty sure I have a recording of that. Um, and it's, it's really, uh, I've never read St. Thomas's, but I can tell you I have heard Chesterton's. Uh, now, brother, did you tell me once upon a time that it is tradition or is believed that Job is the oldest book of the Old Testament? Well, he was, some people believe that. Okay. Um, some people have the Pentateuch being, but remember, Job was an Edomian. He wasn't. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't an Israelite. He was. He was descended from Abraham, but he was descended from um, Isaac through Esau, not through Jacob. Mm. So he wasn't an Israelite. He, but he was an Abrahamite. Uh, now we're we're just about. I I wanted to just get your uh, 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 your take, brother. Are you still listening to um, Corbett? James Corbett. <laughs> yeah, he's he's when when I when I have free time on Sunday, okay. I'll often click on Corbett. I'm the reason I ask is because uh, you and I did a show on why we need a meditative. We we've done a couple of shows where we have mentioned James Corbett, and we've talked about uh, James Corbett's um, his uh, you know he gives these these kind of. Uh, videos that he does, and then he does write things as well. Uh, well, since the news is broken, since Tucker Carlson has reviewed the tapes of what happened on January the 6th, and then it's almost as though I could have sat down and I could have written out what uh, Charles M. Schumer would say about it and what the rest of them would say about it. Um, this, to me, then, is, is, is their lame and vain attempt to preserve this meta-narrative that they've created. That there was this event that we all saw with our very own eyes, and it was it, it was even worse than the Hillsborough soccer riots. So somebody just jumped on my Twitter feed and was going, you don't even know, you don't even know. It was a terrible, terrible riot. I'm like, you want me to tell you what a terrible riot was? Hillsborough versus Liverpool, 1985. 97 dead, 767 trampled and near dead. That's a riot. What happened in the Capitol, you could describe some parts of it maybe as riotous. Uh, was there vandalism? Yes. But the footage plainly shows, well, uh, 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 I'm not dragging you into this conversation. My po point is, we're watching a meta-narrative on trial. This is a big yeah, meta-narrative. Like losing. <laughs> yes, and it, that was my point. It, so when people say, what are we going to do? We can't beat them. We, they just suffered a smashing, a crushing defeat. Their meta-narrative is dissolving right in front of their very eyes. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. That's why I was wondering if you were still listening. And, to you know, that's not the only meta-narrative that's dissolving. The Southern Poverty Law Center, who's oh, been used as yes. a bludgeon against us for 16 years. And, by the way, yes, I did hear you yesterday, and I heard Maggie um, thrilled <laughs> over the arrest of this 28-year-old punk lawyer of the SPLC. Um the, I think I got I got a little laugh. That's sort of a micro Maggie Min. <laughs> <laughs> 
she's still she's but, laughing. She's laughing again, brother. So. <laughs> but the uh, the uh, when you when you uh, look, look at the what they did to us 16 years ago. At that time, people people thought that they were a credible source. They were not credible then. In fact, I don't think Moore's D's was ever credible. You know, they talk about the good old days when he sued the KKK out of existence. Who cares, frankly? I, I don't, I mean, if they were doing violent crimes, they should have been arrested, right? Obviously. There's enough crimes on the book without inventing hate crimes. But they invent this hate crime thing, and then it becomes this extremely expansive concept, which embraces anybody who has any convictions about anything. Um, so what... But anyway, it's 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 a horrific organization. It's just it's a fundraiser. It's a bunco scheme ma made to raise money by creating hysteria to make rich white liberals up north, you know, fork out cash yep. so that the SPLC can get filthy rich, which it is, and it puts its money for some strange reason in offshore accounts. Um, but this this you know the 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 Kyle Serafin, God bless that man, the Kyle Serafin revelations dinged the image of the SPLC mightily in, in even mainstream sources, mainstream Catholic press. And you have Josh Hawley, God bless that Presbyterian. I want to tell you uh, something. Who, we need to pray for his conversion, and yes. Yeah, well, he was a Methodist who became a Presbyterian, so let's I hope he comes into the Catholic Church. But he, he um, put, put um, the, you know, get, get, um, um, Mary Garland on the spot. Do you have a do you have a problem with Catholics? I I, I was stunned the way he opened the interrogation, but um, he, he said Catholics nine times, but we counted nine times. Wow, nine. So times. the SPLC has is really dinged up now, and then they get this news of this guy. And if I'm listening to you correctly, yesterday they actually put out some kind of press release. They didn't distance themselves from the guy. They said, well, no, this is p political. You know. Well, look, they're going to go down with that shit because this guy's probably going to get, I don't know, obviously he's entitled to his day in court. I'm not a judge, right? Uh, not a, you know, I can, I can make judgments, but I'm not the judge who, who, who sits over the man. But, um, but if this guy goes down, if this guy gets sentenced and it's, and it's shown what crimes he committed, and if the SPLC insists on keeping their, their wagon hitched to him, then that will be further dinging of their uh, already uh, well-deserved miserable reputation. There, there's video. There, there, there's video. Uh, let, let me just ask you, or throw in one, one more one more point. I don't know. Did you hear my interview last Friday with Joseph Pierce? No, I didn't. Joseph Pierce. Uh, okay, he just wrote a piece for the Imaginative Conservative, and the title of the piece I don't have it in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing from memory. But basically, was okay. Uh, if Winston Churchill was an anti-Semite Nazi sympathizer, or if 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 Chesterton and Belloc were anti-Semites, then Winston Churchill was a, a Nazi, an anti-Semite, and a Nazi sympathizer. And uh, what Pierce did was he basically he, he quoted what uh, what Churchill had said, and then quoted what uh, what Chesterton and Belloc had said. Because I asked him, I said, "Why did you write a piece about Churchill being a Nazi sympathizer?" And he go, "Well, my, my uncle, but because he wasn't." <laughs> and, and well, everybody it, likes Churchill. I don't. I think Churchill was a rat. He I was think a, he was he a murdered rat too. Innocent Germans. 
But the point being that the anti the, 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 the claim of anti-Semitism is one of the most powerful ones that, 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 that those people with that meta-narrative have. And they use it with impunity. They use it against you. It's like you. throwing really sticky fecal matter at somebody. Yes. Something's they, going to stick. They, Some of it's going to stick. It's such a horrible thing to throw at people. But if you do, because of the nature of the beast, it sticks. So, and trust me, I've been dealing, this is an existential matter for me. I've been dealing with this for 16 years. close to 20 years, okay. I mean, even before the SPLC got on, got on board with this. So, you know, if you talk, if you, God help you, if you quote St. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine, which is all I did in one talk that branded me a, a, a filthy anti-Semite, God forbid you quote St. Thomas on these questions. God forbid you quote fathers and doctors of the church. By the way, somebody ought to do something that I started to do and said, I don't have time for this. Go through Wikipedia on the fathers of the church, St. John Chrysostom, St. Augustine, uh, fathers and doctors. You'll find for many of them a passage that says his anti-Semitism. There's a whole subsection documenting his supposed anti-Semitism, which itself is a filthy neologism. I, I, I've been asked, are you an anti-Semite? He's like, no, some of my best friends are Arabs. Um, <laughs> And not only that, but some of my best friends, but I've been close to Jews as well. I won't say some of my best friends because that wouldn't be honest, but I've, ha I've been close to Jews. I studied at the Jewish Community Center in New Orleans. I went, to, I went to go study Hebrew at the Jewish Community Center in New Orleans. I'm no anti-Semite. Anti-Semites hate Jews because of their blood, and it's a racial category. I don't give a darn about race. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care what blood runs through you. The only blood that matters to me is the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, well, I like my own because it keeps me alive. But uh, <laughs> well, uh, brother, we're, we're just about out of time. I just uh, you will find that piece interesting reading, though, uh, if you if you get a chance or or listen to the podcast. I know a guy. You can find it at crusademax.com, where you can find all of season one, fifty six episodes strong now of Reconquest. Speaking of, so you can binge listen. If somebody asks a question, can I build a playlist at Crusade Max? Yes, you can. You click the follow button on the piece that you're listening to, and then when we do get your account set up, you, there will be a place in your My Account that will have a list of what you have said that you liked, and then you can just tap play right from the list. So can you make a playlist? Yep, sure can. Um, so that's coming. Brother, what, what, what are we going to be treated to on tonight's episode of Reconquest? Uh, what does it mean to love your enemy? Interesting, because some of us have been talking here uh, in the chat room and in the signal chat, and I've talked about about this Lent. Uh, I took my priest, Father Damien's challenge directly and went, okay, I will, Father. I will pray for my enemies. i got to identify them first, but I will pray for my enemies. Um, well, I'm gonna... I don't have to identify mine. <laughs> <laughs> They've surfaced. You want me to give you a short list? I, can... no, I was faced with mine yesterday. He was sat through all throughout the deposition. Which I was, know who that is. I won't say which it. Which was but, an interesting, yeah. interesting thing to deal with. But um, no, I pray for him every day, and I, I forgive him every day at communion time. So uh, I've um, taken the—I don't know where you got it from, or maybe you, you came up with it. But I've taken it seriously that you know when someone is attacking you, or when when, when they have made them your enemy, uh, and you wish to for them to stop, uh, pray to their guardian angel. 
and ask their guardian angel or ask your guardian angel to go to their guardian angel. Can you please? Hey, hey, bro, stop. hey bro. <laughs> hey, bro, you guys are buds, man. Can, yeah. <laughs> can you have my him? guy talk to your guy? Have so my guy talk to your guy. You guys go do lunch. <laughs> Get over this. Leave me alone. Uh, all right, I haven't talked to you since I went to, since I was uh, sunning myself in Florida, as you, uh, as you uh, described of my visit to Tampa. But I will have you know that in my talk, I fast so that Our Lady can work miracles. What's your superpower? I will have you know that I declared myself, I said, before you guys can go and look it up, let me just tell you, I am a Feniite. And a bunch of them kind of looked at me like, what's a Feniite? <laughs> and I went, and I thought to myself, that's good that you don't know. I'm actually, I'm actually very glad. I'm heartened to know that you don't know what a Feniite is. And I was at, this is so, I, I, I had the recording. When I get done, when, when I give it to Justin and he marries it with the video that we shot, me and my friend, Kenabra, Jimmy, debated two Nova Sordo guys. And there was a moderator, and this is at a campfire with a bunch of guys, bourbon and cigars. You, you probably know what happened. Um, and there was did a, somebody say Homer bourbon? No, <laughs> no, but someone did accuse me of being a Feniite. <laughs> <laughs> no, Zorro guys were, well, I guess you're a Feniite and you would say that. And I went, well, I'd take that personally. Uh, so, one place they didn't know, and another place I got accused of it. Uh, uh, I, I wear it like I wear my, my new beautiful Sacred Heart uh, of Jesus uh, 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 tie pen or tie clip that Ashley, my uh, third daughter here, uh, through confirmation, gave me today. So if you're wondering where that tie clip came from, that's... As a matter of fact, we're going to get them for the Founders Trading Post store. Uh, well, brother, I need to learn this, so I will be listening to uh, how to tr truly love your enemy. Did you love an enemy during the episode? Um, you like, like, show by example, this is how you love your enemy. Here, enemy, come here. Let me love you. Uh, no, no, I didn't do a workshop. All right, um, all right. But I did, but I did um, explain the principles of what's involved. And yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it's a very serious subject because it's not an option, as, as uh, some of the fathers of the church point out. You know, I believe it was St. Augustine, or it may have been St. Francis of the Sales, or maybe St. Francis of the Sales was quoting St. Augustine. It's like this. Um, if, if your enemy does something wrong to you and he's a, and he's a bad man, Forgive him so that they will, there will not be two bad men. And that's one of these pithy things that you can remember. I actually quoted that in, in the show. And the more I think about it, the more I believe it was St. Augustine who said it, not St. Francis de Sales. Um, so we have to forgive. And, and, and the saints who said this, some of them, their lives were endangered by their enemies. Again, St. Augustine, the, the, one of his enemies was the Donatists. They were murderers. They went and they took the Blessed Sacrament out of Catholic churches, threw it on the ground, and killed people. Um, St. Augustine ends up calling the Roman authorities in to deal with the Donus as heretics because they were, they, they were like, you know, Antifa people. Um, so this is, the, the, when, when they're talking about forgiving your enemy, these were not people. St. Francis of the Sales' life was in danger when he was in Geneva because it was a Calvinist theocracy, and they were not. Oh, they threatened to kill him. Several so, times. So it's important for us to realize these weren't people sitting in ivory towers writing theoretical tomes about love. They were saying these things in the teeth of the enemy who were striving to destroy them and destroy everything they held, held sacred. Yeah, that's... So it's, it's in that context that they 
learn to love their enemies. And th that we need to know that. We, when they were writing this stuff, they were challenging themselves just as much as they were challenging us. Yeah. This wasn't a war on Twitter. <laughs> Separated oh God, by, th by thousands you know, of miles. Media is, it, it's, social media is a perfect laboratory for learning how to be uncharitable. Yep. Yep. It, it really Amen is. to that, and brother. I don't, I don't get in tits for tats on social media. I just, I, I, I'll reply even to a nasty person. I'll just reply and kind of leave it at a very mild-sounding reply. Because frankly, I mean, who knows how many of these people are are bots, and you're not even actually. I was going to say, how do you know you're actually arguing with a person? And then, even if it is a human person that you're arguing with, maybe they work for the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they want you to say something uh, unbalanced or immoderate, or you know, um, uh, intemperate. I mean, I've said intemperate things over the years. I fully admit it. I'm of choleric dis uh, temperament. And um, you know, you get me mad. I might, I might, you know, be ornery like a like a rattlesnake. <laughs> but that's precisely where one has to acquire virtue and have the meekness to offset that, so that you don't, you know, return violence for violence, even if it's verbal violence. Uh, now, we never stop telling the truth, and you right. can tell the truth in a very transparent way. I had to testify with my enemy sitting in front of me, and I was asked something about him, and I had to, to, to say things that were extremely critical of him, and there he is in his collar, uh, in, in, in a room in, in a, in a, in, at my lawyer's office in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I'm saying these extremely frank assessments of him. Uh, I wasn't afraid, I mean, because I don't, I don't see anything good happening to this relationship eventually, but... Um, unless he converts, and I pray for that every day. But my point is, Mike, that um, we have to temper our speech. And it was actually a good way to do it. I wasn't, you know, we weren't standing nose to nose screaming at each other. I was able to say with lawyers present and being videotaped that, um, actually I was audiotaped, but there was a camera on me because it, part, some of the lawyers were, were zoomed into the room. But um, the, the whole enterprise was a very disciplined thing, right? And I had to answer every question. I mean, except when my lawyer jumped in and said, no, 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 uh, you can't ask him that. <laughs> but um, other than that, I'm having to criticize my enemy right in front of him to his face, although I'm answering his lawyer. So um, th that's an, it was a very interesting exercise in learning restraint. And I had to be frank, and I had to put it in you know, words that were, you know, at one point I said I wasn't surprised that he did that because that's par for the course because that fits his character. And it was something that he had done that was absolutely deplorable and immoral. Um, you know, I imagine he didn't like that. But I was under oath, so I had to say the truth, right? So we don't shy away from the truth when we're um, being charitable, when we're, you know, when we have to deal with our enemy and love our enemy. But we don't, and, and especially if that truth is something divine, right? That's, that's you know, we, we don't say, well, you know, maybe there is salvation inside the church after all because I don't want to offend you. No, that's, that's a weakness. That's not strength. That's, and, and real meekness is strength. It's not weakness. And that's the key. You know, meekness is not weakness. A lot of people say that. But I wrote a piece on the website, Catholicism.org, called Meekness is Strength because I wanted to show how the strength is in the virtue. The strength is not in the vice of screaming some, at some guy in his face. And Twitter is just a perfect rehearsal for being an obnoxious, immoral twit. 
Oh, I think it turns you into an obnoxious, immoral twit. And I see some of these spats that are going on. And I'm like, nope, I just, I, I just log out and walk away. I'm just no, not. And, and everybody's got to have an opinion on everything else and, and everybody else. And, I don't. I, and remember, you remember I told you years ago, don't attack persons, attack ideas. Yes, yes. Attack, and 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 it's and it's it's a matter of testifying to the truth. You don't have to attack the person. And you you simply now obviously if the person did something wrong, you can say that was wrong, right? But even the way people talk about Pope Francis, American politics has spoiled the waters and made it so that we have this throw the bums out attitude towards ecclesiastics. Sorry, the church was set up as a monarchy, and that's by the divine foundation of Jesus Christ. And we can't throw the bums out of office. And this is why you, it's a, when, you, when you're in that kind of a, a, of a conversation, uh, it is not a, the, the person on the other end is not acting charitably when he insists that, well, you can say whatever you want, but it's almost, it's almost like he's not my president, he's not my pope. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I wouldn't say that too many times. I wouldn't keep repeating that because if you get someone else to repeat it, you're getting them to repeat your error. Uh, brother, you got to get back to class. I was going to leave you with a, uh, a quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, which, which is uh, like... Uh, a master of meekness. Le leaving you with a quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger would be uh, 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 very akin to Charles Col uh, Coulomb saying... Liberace was right. <laughs> in a minute. But yeah, did, no, he, he was. That, he, he sent me that by by signal, by a signal chat message the other day, <laughs> and I said, Mike and Candace Church absolutely love that thing. But he he somebody made it up like on a made a graphic out of it, and it's very fancy the way it's written. <laughs> it's I have to ask him this one day what that what, where that even came. He from. didn't if, explain. If it's Charles, it came from left field. No, because Vinnie Franchini asked him, and he and he he doesn't explain. <laughs> it's the only time he says Liberace in a whole episode. Liberace was right. Um, but here's your Schwarzenegger. Here's your meekness from Schwarzenegger. We're like, well, you know, you, you show off your muscles and all this, and you've got this and that and the other. You're, you, you, don't, you don't know what modesty or, or, or humility is. You certainly don't know what meekness is. And he goes, Let me tell you what meekness is. You see that over there? That is a Lamborghini. Do you know how fast a Lamborghini can travel? The Lamborghini can travel 185 miles an hour, 215 kilometer. You know what I do? I cruise down Sunset Strip at 30 kilometer because I know it can go 215, but I restrain it. That's my meekness. <laughs> it's you know, in the movie Pumping uh, Iron. He actually says this in the movie Pumping Iron. I, I, I that's funny. I saw Pumping Iron back in the day because my bro I have a brother who's a who's a a big a bodybuilder guy. Yeah, he's got he's 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 sixty and he's still got the body of Adonis. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I probably saw that. But that's that's funny. I, I guess we'll have to put that in some florilegium of of quotes from saints on meekness. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, he did produce a Catholic daughter, though. She, by all accounts, is. What's, what's the, the one, Schwarzenegger's daughter, just married, um, the Tratty. Yeah, yeah. Just, oh, no, not the Tratty. She married Christopher, uh, Christopher Pratt. I thought, no, no, she, no. She is Maria Shriver's daughter. Maria Shriver's. She's Catholic. 
She absolutely and, and the Shrivers were at one time pro-life pro-life Democrats. Yes, in yes they were. Joe Doyle could tell you all about Sergeant the Shriver, Shriver family. Yeah. That's right. He could tell you all about the Shriver family. Uh, brother, uh, give our best to to the brothers and sisters at the the center as well. And oh, can I ask everybody? Can I ask everybody to pray for the son of my attorney? <laughs> my attorney's name is Michael Tierney, and his son Joe was in a car accident years ago, and he's got some brain. He's 20 years old, and it affected his brain. And the poor guy, he's perfectly able-bodied, but his brain flakes out, and he ends up driving a car and crashing it and doing stuff like this. So it's a real hardship for the family, and they kind of don't know what to do. Um, so if you could pray for Joe Tierney, I'd appreciate it. Joe Tierney. All right, brother. Thank you. God bless you. We'll see you next week. God bless you, Mike. God bless our listeners. Bye-bye. All right.